This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek graphic novel collection. Get your first volume, Countdown, for only $4.95 when you sign up today at eaglemoss.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 228, Ship in a Bottle. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart from messages, morals, and meanings, and seeing whether the whole thing stands the test of time. This week, Ship in a Bottle, the one with Professor Moriarty. I'm sorry, the other one with Professor Moriarty. Less crumpets, more countess in this one. Not so much rocking the Enterprise as taking it over. Or is he? John's got trivia coming up in just a moment, but first... But first, a word from our friends at Eagle Moss with the official Star Trek graphic novel collection. Ken, I was trying to think of a way to put this and why I like this so much. Uh, You might remember that I did a show where uh, I talked about DVDs and Blu-rays and... The thing that I loved about collecting DVDs and Blu-rays was all the special features, all the bonus content, the commentaries, the -the behind-the-scenes stuff. And it dawned on me that this collection from Eagle Moss is that, but for graphic novels and comic books. Hmm. So think about it. They're taking everything together, authorized by CBS, every version of Star Trek comics that has ever existed putting them together, and then giving you the behind-the-scenes, the the connected threads between those stories. Uh, it, this is kind of the ultimate collector's version for anybody who is into Star Trek uh, graphic novels and comic books. Yeah, and one of the cool things, too, is when you're going through a collection like this, somebody has actually gone through and collected. Yes. I mean, we all love Star Trek, but... Season three of the original series. Am I right? <laughs> I mean, I think I think you understand what I'm saying. I mean, people are going through actually and finding the best of the last 50 years of Star Trek comics and bring them together in this, you know, really amazing collection that spans decades and and features everything from the first Star Trek comic all the way to the ones that are being printed today. And what's nice is it really is done with collectors in mind. So you get these beautifully bound, hardbound books with the specially commissioned introductions. Um, and they're written by people that you know already from Star Trek. Harlan Ellison, David Gerald, DC Fontana, Roberto Orsi, Alex Kurtzman, Brandon Braga. The list just goes on and on. And each volume collects multiple issues from a specific story arc and a specific era in Star Trek history and includes a bonus reprint of a classic adventure as well. So not only do you get the big story, but then you get a, a little story uh, from further back in the timeline. I, I love seeing those kind of connections where they have a modern story and then they'll run like a gold key comic along with it to show you maybe a similar story thread or idea. And and that's the thing. You can get these stories that have been out of print for decades, I mean, nearly 50 years. <laughs> so secret origins of lost characters, sequels to classic stories, movie adaptations. I mean, it's really everything from five decades of Star Trek. All five TV series, all of the movies, Star Trek, the motion picture through Star Trek Beyond. And all the publishers are here as well. That's Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Paramount Comics, Wildstorm, Tokyo Pop, and IDW. Even the rarely seen British strips from the early 1970s are included in these collections. 
So you can start your collection today with Volume 1 Countdown for only $4.95 with free shipping. In this gripping prelude to J.J. Abrams' 2009 Star Trek movie, you'll uncover the circumstances that drove Nero and Spock to travel back to the 23rd century and, in doing so, usher in the Kelvin universe. Bonus content includes the first Gold Key Star Trek comic book from 1967. And subsequent editions uh, ship twice monthly, and they're delivered directly to your door. And, you know, you can cancel any time if you want to. But why would you? Yeah, who would want to? (laughs) For details on the entire collection, including a host of exclusive free gifts and to order, visit EagleMoss.com slash mission log that address again is eaglemoss.com slash mission log and a huge thanks to eagle moss for sponsoring this week's show guys i pretend to hear you think how do i get in touch with you i don't know why i think people are thinking that right now i mean this is the time when we say it maybe that's why i'm thinking that i think so yeah Yeah. there are a bunch of ways to get in touch with us though and if you will uh, i will tell you what they are Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log And if your comments include trivia, we may include that too. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen in tonight's edition or today's edition or this edition. I don't know. Maybe John did all this by himself. Maybe he heard from you. Listen closely and find out. Trivia for Ship in a Bottle. The episode is written by Rene Echeverria. We remember Rene, of course, when he was a writer slash waiter in New York, and he sent in his spec script to the TNG offices. That was for The Offspring, which landed him a permanent gig on the show. It was directed by Alexander Singer. We saw his next-gen directorial debut very recently with Relics, and he's got a few more to go before jumping over to Deep Space Nine and then Voyager. So, remember way back in Season 2, we had our first taste of Sherlock Holmes on Next Gen. You may recall that the estate of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was not too happy. At the time, the production staff at Next Gen thought Sherlock Holmes was in the public domain. Not the case. And even though the episode went over very well with those at the estate, it took some careful smoothing to then approach them about the idea of doing this sequel episode. Everything worked out in the end. And if you want to read more about that, you can also check out the Paramount movie uh, Young Sherlock Holmes, because that had apparently also been part of the problem with the negotiation to be able to use the character and uh, name Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson and Moriarty. So it was a whole legal snafu that finally got worked out. Jerry Taylor was really the one who pushed it through because she wanted to do this episode. Cogito ergo sum. So we hear that line in the episode. Uh, of course, Descartes. Now, have we talked about Rene Descartes before, Ken? I feel like we may have at some point. It's hard to imagine we wouldn't have, but I don't remember a specific time. Yeah, yeah. Well, for, for those who maybe don't remember, uh, French scientist and philosopher of the 17th century, his concepts really formed the bedrock for a lot of modern thought and analytical process. I think, therefore, I am. Yes, Totally. That, that's his line. And you can flip that on his head and you can say that if one is skeptical of existence, 
That is proof in and of itself that he does exist. Chew on that for a little bit. Now, who is Heisenberg? We hear that name in here as well. German physicist Werner Karl Heisenberg, best known for his work in quantum mechanics. Uh, Heisenberg published his paper about the uncertainty principle in 1927, and he got his Nobel Prize in 1932 for, yeah, creating quantum mechanics. And we have the shuttle Sakharov, named for Russian Nobel Peace Prize winner Andrei Sakharov, He was a nuclear physicist, but an advocate of disarmament. We first mentioned it way back in season two when it was used in unnatural selection. So there's more than one connection back to Dr. Pulaski in this episode. Hey, we have a nice look at the physical holodeck set, the non-virtual one again, though smaller than the last one that we saw that was a physical set. Um, Hey, there's a tiny detail. I don't know if you picked this up. Uh, I did a freeze frame on this. The computer says it's reading back transport log 759, but the LCARS display shows 721. Anybody else notice that? Stuck out to me. Hmm. And let's talk about guest stars today. Well, Dwight Schultz, of course, we've talked about Dwight Schultz before. Mad Dog Murdoch and our introduction to Reginald Barclay was in Hollow Pursuits. We also have Daniel Davis as Moriarty. You know, for a guy from Arkansas, he's pretty convincing as a 19th century English super criminal. We met Davis before in Elementary Dear Data. We mentioned then some highlights from his long and impressive career. Uh, Don't forget The Hunt for Red October, a long gig on The Nanny. He has played Hamlet more than half a dozen times, and he is a Tony Award-nominated actor. And finally, Stephanie Beecham as Countess Regina Bartholomew. Stephanie Beecham is well-known for roles on soap operas like Dynasty and the Colbys, as well as Beverly Hills 90210 and Sequest DSV. I also happen to love that she appeared on some great British cult TV shows like The Saint and Jerry Anderson's UFO. Who does not love a reprise? Moriarty still likes to party, but he is causing trouble and bothering everybody. Prologue. It's 221B Baker Street. There are gas lamps, paper books, antique furniture, smoking jackets, and accents. Just, you know, accents. It's not Data and LaForge as we know them, but rather in the guise of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson cracking open another mystery. The holodeck plays along. Though there might be a little glitch, one of the virtual characters doesn't quite respond the way he should, using his right hand instead of his left. LaForge calls up the master of all things holodeck, that would be Reg Barclay, and asks him to look into it. Everything's good with the program that was running, but there is a little isolated bit of programming. When it's activated, a character appears, Professor Moriarty. What he tells Barclay is hard to believe. He's aware of who he is, a holodeck creation, and he's aware that he has been in storage for more than four years. He also wants to see Captain Picard. Barclay says he'll ask, but in the meantime he'll have to shut down the program, and with a chip removed, Moriarty vanishes. Barclay leaves the holodeck, and a moment later, Moriarty reappears. Act 1. The Enterprise is in the Detrian system to watch two gas-giant planets collide, possibly creating a new star. Yeah. So, about the holodeck. Barclay tells Data, LaForge, and Captain Picard about Moriarty, and sure enough, There he is at 221B Baker Street, not too keen on how he's been treated. He is alive by his estimation, 
but left to wallow for four years as an inactive computer program. Picard assures him that this is a mystery Starfleet has been working to understand, but Moriarty wants to leave and live on his own. Picard tries to demonstrate what will happen. He tosses a holographic book through the exit door, and sure enough, it vanishes. Moriarty is convinced that he's different somehow, that his will alone means that he exists in a way the book doesn't. When he walks out the door, he doesn't vanish. Moriarty is on board the Enterprise. Act 2. In sickbay, Dr. Crusher confirms, Moriarty is human. No one knows quite how, but here he is, flesh and blood and DNA and all that 19th century swagger. So now what? Well, he wants a tour. First mind-blowing concept? The Enterprise is in space, not the ocean. Next mind-blowing concept? He's got a life to lead out there in the world. But hold your horses. Picard reminds Moriarty that he's a criminal, and, you know, that's not totally acceptable in this day and age. But don't worry, Moriarty reminds him. His whole history is literally fiction, dreamed up by Arthur Conan Doyle. This is different. He can lead his own life now. Just one little extra thing he'd like. A companion. Countess Regina Bartholomew. Moriarty's got a girlfriend. She's also on the holodeck, so, you know, could you bring her to life, too? Well, Picard's not really sure how that would work anyway. Moriarty is unique, a new life form. Can they ethically just create a new one? This is all a pretty big challenge, which means a senior staff meeting is in order. Yeah, probably not a great idea. There are just too many unknowns. So Picard breaks the bad news to Moriarty, who honestly seems a bit heartbroken under his disappointment and seething anger. No more time to debate it, though. Time to check in with that really interesting B-plot about the colliding planets. From the bridge, Picard orders Probe to be sent out, but, uh, they're not working. No bridge controls are working at all. When Picard requests that the computer reroute command functions, it doesn't comply. All command controls of the Enterprise have been rerouted to Moriarty. Act 3. The demands are really quite obvious. Moriarty wants the Countess to be liberated from the holodeck. If not, then he'll allow the Enterprise to remain where it is and be destroyed in five hours when the planets collide. Picard's not even sure they can meet his demands, but Data will investigate the possibility. What he, LaForge, and Barclay devise is really quite novel. What about using the transporter to beam an object, or in this case a being, from the holodeck into the Enterprise? There's not any there there, but they might be able to fix that with a pattern enhancer. Also, Picard asks LaForge, let's please do something to regain control of the ship. Huh? How, how about that? Barclay goes to the holodeck to set up the pattern enhancers, and who should be there but the Countess herself? Barclay sets up the pattern enhancers around a chair. Better to try with a hollow chair than a hollow person at this point. But she's inquisitive about what he's doing, and yeah, she actually understands what's going on. The holodeck, the real world, Moriarty, you name it. She has this sense of being because Moriarty gave it to her in the same way life was given to him. They go about the experiment, beaming a chair from the 221B Baker Street holodeck location to the transporter room, and the test is not a success. What beams into the transporter room is nothing. They just couldn't get a lock on it. Data runs an analysis of the transporter log file, and also nothing. There is literally no record of what just happened. 
This gives Data a moment of pause. He goes to engineering to find Picard and LaForge at work and failing to return command controls of the ship back to the captain. Then Data acts on his hunch. He tosses a small instrument toward the right hand of LaForge, who catches it with his left hand. Data has it figured out. None of this is real, because they're still on the holodeck. That sound was your mind being blown. Act 4. That's right. Data just went full Sherlock Holmes. He deduced that there was no transporter log because there was no transport taking place. It was a simulation. And left-handed LaForge, sorry, you're fake too. Picard and Data are real enough, but even Riker, who answers from the bridge that Picard is in engineering, must be a simulation too, and Moriarty is in control of it all. Cut to the real bridge. Moriarty, from his virtual enterprise, is telling the real Riker what he demands, to get him into the real world. And, oh, by the way, you've only got about three more hours to do it before those planets collide. If Riker needs any more convincing, Moriarty escalates a little warp core incident of the real Enterprise, a little taste of what he can do. In the holodeck, Picard prevails upon Countess Bartholomew in a 24th century charm-off. He strikes with an appeal to her intelligence. Boom! And then she comes back with a clever banter. Smack! He's all up in her humor. It's going to be tough to call. She's calling out his sex appeal. Okay? Truce. Moriarty is the real topic here. He wants to leave the holodeck with the Countess, and she wants to go with him. Picard can help. A little modification of the transporter, a little uncoupling of the Heisenberg compensators. Well, what else does a woman want to hear? Just one catch. She's got to convince Moriarty to hand control of the Enterprise back to Picard. The situation on the bridge is just as tense. They're counting down to being burned alive. And meanwhile, Worf and his team can't even get near the holodeck due to the force fields that have been set up. When the Countess approaches Moriarty, he's intrigued, but skeptical. He rings up Commander Riker. Now how about those Heisenberg compensators? Act 5, and away we go. Moriarty and the Countess step between the pattern enhancers, and in a moment, they are beamed into the transporter room. And they're alive. It worked. Now Riker is ready to get control back of the Enterprise, but Moriarty won't budge just yet. With the clock ticking again, he demands a shuttlecraft so that he and the Countess can escape. Only then will he give computer control of the Enterprise back to the real crew. Okay? Fine. Riker escorts him to the shuttle bay. They can go wherever they want, but seriously, now we need command back of the ship. Just after the shuttle departs, Moriarty makes good on his promise. He connects to the Enterprise computer and releases command back to the crew. As they make their escape, planning one day to go back to Earth... Picard commands that the program be saved in active memory, and the simulation end. Riker and Worf disappear from the shuttle bay. The shuttle bay itself disappears. The moment Moriarty and the Countess believed they were beamed into the real world was itself a holodeck simulation. (laughs) Your mind just got blown again. But wait. Picard meets Data and Barclay. They discontinue the program they were just in, the fake Enterprise inside Moriarty's simulation, and... The mind-blowing won't stop. The Enterprise is safe, and Barclay stops for a moment to collect a data module from the holodeck. A little later, he brings it to the captain and the rest of the senior staff, 
It's the programming that made Moriarty, stored in active computer circuitry, with enough power to let the simulation run for a lifetime. And Picard posits that, you never know, they themselves might just be a simulation running in a computer somewhere. Mind blown again. The end. You know what I realized after watching this episode a few times? What's that? I don't know what I really sound like when I'm screaming. <laughs> wait, 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 huh? Wait, what do you mean? When I'm screaming. Because the thing at the end there, when Picard's like, hey, who knows? We could all be a simulation. Yeah. I just kind of wanted to scream my guts out. Mm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. because, like, and, and sort of like, you know, the whole, like, Barkley thing at the end where he's like, hey, yeah, maybe we... Yeah, well, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that's like the kind of thing that would drive Barkley mad. Also, I did have a thing where he like, you know, so, so then to try to decide whether or not he's in a simulation, he says computer and program. Right. And I thought, what if the little tiny holodeck that he's holding that houses Moriarty and the Countess, like heard that? <laughs> oh, 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 that would be like, yeah, the just the voice of God from above them. Yeah. Like the lights go out on that. Big, oh, ee. yeah. Whoops. Hey, you'll keep that safe, won't you? Yeah, sure. What am I? <laughs> <laughs> kind of amazing, actually. I suppose you also didn't say computer and program out loud because then you were afraid that the box that you're in on a desk somewhere would just stop running and you, you couldn't face it. I actually meant to look it up recently. Somebody did that whole thing recently. I can't mm-hmm. remember who it was. might have been Stephen Hawking. It was somebody really, you know, big and brainy. One of the mm-hmm. big brains whose names we all know. Yeah, you know, they got good like, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a halfway decent chance that uh, that we're just in a video game. Yeah, <laughs> right. all right, well, right. good. Yeah, and then I realized I don't know what I really sound like screaming. Hey, yeah. um, kind of crappy that Pulaski doesn't even get a name check in this episode. Just like oh. my prisoner. I think that's that's how he referred to her. Just say Pulaski. Just say Pulaski, please. Somebody say Pulaski. You know what? Honestly, would have been great if uh, Diana Muldaur had been back as the Countess. Oh, how good would that be? Was there a weird vibe between her and the production? Do you know, Mr. Trivia Dude? Oh, between uh, Diana Maltar? Yeah. Because I remember like when we had uh, when we had Marina Sirtis on one of our um one of our supplemental episodes, she told us that uh, she was talking to Diana one time and Diana was like, Yeah, I'm here for one season. Yeah, yeah. And and she has said that before too. Um, Diana Moldar has said it before, but um, no, not not in particular. There, there was no sort of rush to get her out of there. Um, yeah, by, by by all accounts, it was a very professional relationship that she had with the show. Um, okay, I, obviously there was some excitement to bring Gates McFadden back, and and she only looked at it as a as a, a one season job. You know, yeah, it would have been great though. It would have been great if she'd been the countess. Would have been weird. I, oh, I agree. She she could have been the countess, and then when she meets Beverly at some point, they just could have given each other a look like, mm. and then <laughs> she looks eye. back like, mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that might have been a little odd, I suppose. Yeah, um, look, I, I gotta say, and I have no problem saying this on our show to our you know hordes of listeners. Um, I am comfortable enough in my own sexuality to say that Moriarty is a sexy villain. Uh, probably the sexiest villain since Khan. Really? You think so? It, he's got the swagger, man. He, he's got... Yeah. Yeah. All right. I mean, he, he's, not a, he's not a sexy villain like Dila, but if we're, talking, if we're talking about the male villains of Star Trek, I, I think, yeah, Moriarty, he's, he's bringing it, man. 
he's he's bringing it in spades. I got no problem with that. He's a cool character. I mean, I'm a little bothered actually that he's. This might be better for next segment. I'm a little bothered that he's more of a villain in this episode than he was in the last episode. Hmm. He woke up, I mean, in, in Elementary Dear Data, which I actually went back and watched, yeah. which is another reason that Pulaski, like, just not even mentioning her kind of hurts. <laughs> I know, right. Um, he, I mean, he was like, he woke up from being a bad guy. Now, he was still willing to literally pull the levers of power, I mean, to rock the ship and say, look, I can be in control here. But once he realizes, you know, his lot in life, that basically is not actually alive, mm-hmm. Then he he kind of does the same thing that Dixon Hill's friend did in the first episode, uh, one of the first holodeck episodes. Oh in the yeah, first season. Uh, the the big goodbye. Yeah, right. Yeah, basically, uh, just well, what of me? You know, yeah. kind of thing. But yeah. but willing to sort of let it ride. And this time he he comes back almost immediately as a villain. Of course, he also felt the time that he was asleep, so that could be part of it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's desperation tinged with vengeance, and you know, maybe that's a question of. Um, are you simply the culmination of your past experiences? I, I appreciate the moment that he says, my history is fiction mm-hmm. written by somebody who has been dead for 500 years. But <laughs> can he really escape that? Can he really escape uh, all those experiences that have been written to make him who he is? It's, you know, ah, I don't know. I don't know that we'll be able to answer that. But I, I appreciate that he said that at least. Because it it made you at least feel for him a little bit in the respect that, well, he's not just a two-dimensional criminal. Mm -hmm. He's he's a guy with some feelings. And and I'm so glad that they have the Countess there as as a counterpart to that. It helps you believe him that he's he's driven by something other than just, you know, the he's the mustache twirling criminal, the the villain. So I, I I bought it a little bit. And hey, speaking of crime. Um, Picard says it's a lot harder to get away with it in the 24th century. I wonder. I, I do wonder. <laughs> is it is it really, or is it just that crimes have evolved too? I mean, on Earth, at least, I was under the impression that we wouldn't really need crime that much anymore because mm-hmm. everybody's got everything they need and want. So, True. I mean, maybe I would think actually. Well, I would actually think that crime might be easier to get away with. Was it a Demolition Man where they talked about the murder, death, kill? They hadn't had one in forever because, you know, mostly things were okay, except it turns out, of course, it was science fiction. So there is a seedy underside of people who aren't okay, but they're actually not the ones doing the murder death kill anyway. But crime had become such an unknown thing in Demolition Man that then when actual crime happens, they're ill prepared to, to figure out where it came from or who did it. Yeah, because it's just it's just not so much a thing anymore. Yeah. Um, here's one thing I love seeing in this episode: Barclay was not an idiot. Oh, yes, yeah, it was nice. He was a little. I mean, he got a little aw shucks with the Countess, but that's okay. And of mm-hmm. course, he still has this sort of affected manner of speech. Yeah, but that's fine because that's part of his character. But he wasn't a moron. Yeah, which is which is great. I mean, this is not. I mean, there has been redemption for this character. You know, every now and then. Yeah, but I like the fact that there wasn't a moment where it's like, "Oh man, Barclay's going to get us all killed." <laughs> right, no? right. No, he he he's an integral part of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to see that. Um, I, I tell you who is having a problem, uh, Mister LaForge. Would you excuse us, please? There is nothing sadder than seeing a holodeck Jordy just have to mope off stage. <laughs> Just, right. you're not wanted here, fake Jordy. Oh, yeah. Was that guy. so? Was that like, um, 
like uh, privilege of rank or privilege of humanity because they are actually standing in Jordy's office. Yeah. When, when Picard's like, will you go somewhere else? <laughs> and Jordy doesn't even do the whole, it's my office, you go somewhere else. He's just like, yeah. oh, yeah, right, I'll... I'll go stand behind this thing. I'm fake. I'll go stand behind the <laughs> fake wall in my <laughs> fake engineering room on my fake ship. Yeah, it was it was sad. But but to the point of what Picard's trying to do, literally anything that he says could theoretically be picked up, interpreted by, reported back to Moriarty. He doesn't know how mm-hmm. Moriarty's pulling the strings. So Picard may have inadvertently given Moriarty his command codes to take control over the real Enterprise when they were right before that moment. They're in the holodeck uh, engineering room. Um, but then I asked, well, doesn't the computer already know those codes? And and again, what about fail safes in the holodeck that just all this information is available to everybody all the time? Um, hmm. But yeah, because the computer has to know, oh, that's the right code to let somebody take control. Well, there's a reason data can't say can't, mm-hmm. sure. right? And we don't know what that is, but there is a reason there that he cannot do that. You're right. The computer, I mean, the codes are basically like a key. Mm-hmm. And the computer hears those codes and is able to unlock. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the computer can generate that key by itself, which is, of course, crazy. Yeah. Because because the computer has recreated everybody else on the Enterprise. So why couldn't they just recreate Picard and say, oh, remember that time Picard said that thing? What was it again? Can you say that one more time for me? Oh, there we go. Right. right. And now I have control of myself. Yes. Once again, the computer is trying to gain sentience. And I'm skipping mm-hmm. to the next segment. Yeah, I, I know. Right. Yeah. We're trying to claim it even, not even gain it, claim it. But yeah. we'll come back to that. And then we'll come back to it again and probably and again. And again. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, wait, how does Picard even know that data is the real data and not a holodeck data? Maybe the computer is just trying to mess with them even more. That's true. Once they separated, it could be anybody. Although, not. <laughs> right. It, there was this one funny little thing that I noticed toward the end of the episode. Um, with the urgency of Moriarty and the Countess, they have to leave in a shuttle. We're going to get in the shuttle. Well, as soon as you get in that shuttle, you got to send us the codes, okay? All right, we're going to get in the shuttle. We're going to open the shuttle bay doors. And then that door closing behind them is <laughs> the slowest moving door on the planet. And I, I kept picturing, you know, Holodeck Riker and Holodeck Worf standing behind them saying, okay, you're going to send us those codes. Okay, um... Cool, you can still hear us out here, right? Because we're waiting for the door to close. Okay, well, yeah, you guys take off as soon as... Okay, well, we'll just, uh, yeah, we'll we'll wait until the door closes, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Guess what? I am conscious, too. I think, therefore I am. In Latin, cogito, ergo, sum. In French. Okay, I do not actually speak French. Still, I totally think, therefore, I totally am. So faced with two impossibilities, and this kind of actually goes back to the whole thing of the computer knows the code as the key, but doesn't know the code. Mm -hmm. Faced with two impossibilities, which would have seemed more likely to data? That Moriarty had, you know, taken over the computer somehow? Taking over the holodeck and taking over the computer. Yeah. Or that the laws of physics no longer applied. <laughs> um, I, I think the first, I, I think that Moriarty had taken over the computer because data, data is a computer. 
he knows that there is no such thing as a perfect system, that everything's got a, a backdoor or a way in. I mean, he himself has got that on-off switch that he wants nobody to know about that everybody knows about. <laughs> <laughs> Except data can't say can't. I mean, there are things mm -hmm, that data mm -hmm. is not able to do. Data knows that he cannot feel. Data knows that he cannot say can't. Mm -hmm. Data knows that the computer can't take over for the computer. Because hmm. my immediate thought was, well, this is idiotic. The second that Moriarty walks into the hall, because we all remember what happened to Red, what's his name? Um, Lawrence Tierney, the guy from The Big Goodbye as well, right? He walked out in the hall, and for a second, he's standing there, and then he dissolves. There's a problem with the book thing, because uh, Wesley Crusher one time threw a snowball that hit Captain Picard, and that snowball came sailing out of the holodeck. And hit the captain. Didn't stop at the door. But either way, mm -hmm. I mean, Moriarty might get a second or two out, just as um, Sumner Redstone did. <laughs> Except it wasn't Sumner Redstone. Whatever. The Lawrence <laughs> Turner character from the show. Yeah. I'm not looking to poke a hole in this show right away. I was just trying to figure out, okay, neither of those things should be able to happen. One of them does. Why does Data assume that that is the correct one? It seems to me that some part of Data might have gone, hang on a second. Are we sure we're outside right now? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, but, you know, Data's the one who made the leap to think that the exocomps might be alive. Mm -hmm. So it, it took him to make that leap and nobody else. Nobody else is willing to see it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, may, maybe he's the right guy to, uh, to think that. Again, though, that is different than bending the laws of physics. Sure. Yeah. Very much so. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I, we're back to the, I mean, gosh, I, I, how much of this do we even think that we could get through in this tiny singular episode of Mission Log? The Enterprise computer may or may not itself be alive. That's a, a debatable point or have sentience or consciousness, but it has the ability to create something that acts as if it's alive and thinks that it's alive and will go to great lengths to... Um, express its aliveness, <laughs> even even if that's within a holodeck simulation. That that's that's going to come back to a, a question that I have for you toward the the end of this segment. But um, that that's sort of the the difficult thing to to grapple with in this. Well, episode. That's no fair. What's the question? All right. Well, it, here's the thing. At the <laughs> end. All right. At the end of the episode. Yeah. At the end, of, when the when Moriarty and the Countess are making their escape in the shuttle. Yeah. Yeah, with the incredibly closing door, the incredibly slowly closing door. Very yes. slowly closing door. Yeah. yeah. Um, they they are avatars <laughs> of the Enterprise computer. We talked about how Leah Brahms is an avatar of the Enterprise computer, right? Yeah, flirting with Jordy all the way through. And they, they are purely with each other, mm -hmm. and there's nobody else there to see it, and they're happy. So is the Enterprise computer happy at that moment and then and then Picard just pulls the plug just nope get nope we got to stop this he, well yeah that's a great question he doesn't I mean he doesn't pull the plug he allows that portion of the Enterprise computer to go on being happy forever and ever apparently Maybe. for as long as they're going to live yeah, or they go commit crimes on other planets and end up in jail. <laughs> All right, you see, there's another question. I wanted to circle back around to that one, too. So let me go ahead and raise yeah. it, and hopefully one of us will remember. 
Okay. So Moriarty was not a bad guy the last time we saw him. He did take control, but in the end, he was like, I'm not a criminal. I just want to live. And so you're going to go work on me living, and so that's going to be fine. And so, you know, there you go. Doctor, what's your name? You're free to leave now. <laughs> uh, Data, you're good to go. Captain, nice to see you. All that stuff, right? Yeah. And this time when Moriarty comes back, before he has even done anything squirrely as far as we know, Picard's like, now listen, being a criminal's wrong. Yeah. Right. And Moriarty's like, yeah, I know, because, you know, not only did we talk about that last time, which you apparently don't remember, but also I'm not really a criminal. I'm just a character. And Picard's like, OK, hey, wh what's your interest in this countess? Are you two going to commit crime? <laughs> what's up? Well, like, what's up? Seriously, he has a he has a predisposition towards Moriarty being a bad guy. Yeah. Which I understand. I mean, the guy's name is Moriarty and that is how he was written. But sure. I mean, Picard actually does acknowledge, look, we did not mean to create you. You are a form of life that we did not mean to create, so we don't really know how to deal with you. But we're going to go ahead and assume you're bad. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned the exocomps mm -hmm. and data. I was reminded of them as well because that was the whole thing, right? I don't remember the doctor's name who created the exocomps, but she was like, that's, these are tools. These are not life. Dr. Sung was trying to create life, and so that's what data is. I was not trying to create life, so that is not what the exocomps are. Yeah. Right. And Picard says, you know, you're a new life form, one we didn't intend to create, so the ethics of making another one are too questionable to proceed. But I'm going to go ahead and assume you were a bad guy, because what we did mean to make was a bad guy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and you, you know, you're still wearing that coat, and you still got the sideburns, <laughs> and yeah. so I'm assuming you're actually evil, even though the last time I saw you, you weren't. Yeah. Well, I, and, you know, that that's what makes him an interesting and complex bad guy. It's it, it's the bad guy who doesn't think he's doing bad, you know. Is he doing bad, though? So there's another question. Is he doing bad? Because here's the thing. Picard, like, you know, told him last time he saw him, listen, we're going to work on getting you out of here. Yeah. And in fairness, they did set him up for the fact that it could be more than four years. Um, again, just because I watched Elementary Dear Data earlier today. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, he says I, he looks forward to seeing Dr. What's-Her-Name again. And, and Dr. What's-Her-Name <laughs> says, you know, it could be a while and I might be much older then. Yeah. And he says, well, I'll still fill you with crumpets, madam, which may have been a euphemism. I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, and then like four years later, Picard's like, hey, you, I totally didn't forget about you. We have so been working on this the whole time. The finest minds, whatever. I mean, he's been forgotten, and the and the and the other thing is, he actually had glimpses of being stored in memory for the past four years. Yeah. So is he a bad guy at that point? I, I don't think so. Okay. Really, you know. Yeah. All right. I think he is. So taking over the Enterprise and really threatening everybody's life is he a bad guy? That's what because that, that's what I'm asking. I'm not just asking character wise. Is he a bad guy? Is what he does bad at that point? Sure. What what he does is bad, but it, it you know it's it's driven by motivations that are easier to understand than just he's a bad by bad guy because he's written that way. Right. He, he's a guy with with vengeance and desperation and and an existential crisis on his mind. Mm -hmm. So he he's acting out because of that. Yes. Hey, speaking of crumpets, um, <laughs> when now when we were first dealing with the holodeck. We learned that the technologies involved are 
They're holographic projections, but also supplemented with force fields and, and transporter slash replicator technology. It's just a lot of stuff going on, mm-hmm. you know. For example, if it's a long street scene in London, it's probably just a holographic projection with no substance. And it just kind of keeps moving like, um, you, you know, like a, a movie scene going by in a, in a car shot or a train <laughs> shot. You just see the, you know, you just see the bad rear projection go by, right? It's like the Flintstones. Exactly. Yeah. You just, you kind of move your feet really fast <laughs> and then the car goes and then that, that background just whizzes by, you know. Right. Um, but, if, but if it's a crumpet that you can eat. Well, the computer is replicating that prop for you to eat. It's actually making a crumpet. It's not making a a piece of cardboard that looks like a crumpet. It's making a thing that you can eat because you're a character in that world. Mm -hmm. And the computer is kind of making a decision ahead of time saying like, okay, well, this maybe this plate over here, maybe the shop full of food, that isn't all food I have to replicate. But this plate that will go to this character, that needs to be a thing that that character can eat or that person can, can eat. Now, Picard could have picked up a book, tossed it through the exit, and it may have just as well stayed in one piece. <laughs> that would have been hilarious. That would have been hilarious. Like, okay, okay, bad example. I'm sorry. Right, just, right. Can, can we get a right. dog in here? Can, maybe I could throw that through, and that wouldn't. So, uh, so it's like the drawing of the Enterprise that we saw in Elementary Dear Data. Yes. That, that drawing makes it out of the holodeck, right? But now we're still kind of grappling with the idea that the Enterprise computer through Moriarty is still aware and is trying to outwit its captors. It's like, okay, well, Picard, let's see, we're, we're going to make these books over here fake, but we'll make that one a real one. Oh, he went for the fake one instead of the real one, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> That's a very funny idea. It actually yeah. makes me wonder now that I think about it. Uh-huh. The catalog shop that we've talked about before, that should really mm-hmm. be on the holodeck, shouldn't it? Oh, it absolutely should. So you can see yeah. how it's going to look in somebody's quarters, or you can yeah. see how it's going to look in your quarters, or, you know, yeah. whatever. And then if you don't like it, you just throw it through the arch and it disintegrates before <laughs> it hits the floor. Right. You know? Or just tell it to go away. Do you think that this episode kind of cops out of exploring whether or not holodeck characters or, or the Enterprise computer has sentience by not really going that route? So essentially the computer played the game again, creating a character so challenging that possibly even this time data couldn't beat it. Mm -hmm. You know, it it made the game that much more complex, but it it sort of shies away from the central question, which is, is Moriarty alive or, and, and by, by extrapolation is the enterprise computer alive. I don't know that it shies away from that, though, because Moriarty says that he's been aware of it for four years. Nobody's called up the Moriarty character. Well, until Reg does. Reg calls it up to figure out what the anomaly is. And that's kind of the problem. It's sort of like when I asked on that episode, why is it that Riker can't sleep? Yeah. Because Riker couldn't sleep before we found those aliens. There was a problem with Riker being able to sleep there. We still don't really know why the holodeck is malfunctioning. Is the holodeck malfunctioning because of Moriarty or... Did we discover that Moriarty was still awake and dreaming um, because the holodeck was malfunctioning? Yeah. I See, I, I don't know. I mean, Elementary Dear Data was definitely more of an examination of consciousness and manufactured intelligence and those kinds of things. I kind of feel like, though, that we, we sort of take, because we met him four seasons ago, we sort of take Moriarty's consciousness as red, 
right? Hmm. We don't have mm-hmm. to reestablish that because it's been established. Mm-hmm. Now, the drag about that is, okay, well, so then, then it just sort of devolves at that point, I think, yeah. into, yeah. okay, so he's a bad guy. Oh, okay, so he's tricking us, you know. I had difficulty with the whole Countess thing initially. I mean, I thought she was just kind of a distraction for the audience, uh, mm-hmm. something, or, and, and a distraction for Picard as well, something to draw Picard's attention away from what Moriarty was really up to. But he does really love her, it seems, or he thinks he loves her anyway. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't want to leave the holodeck without her. And there's even like a there's even like a further thing of like Moriarty is not happy because he says that she was made for him to love, but that means she was made to love him as well. Yeah, she was made for loving him, baby. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so Moriarty's not satisfied with leaving the Countess as a simulation, and I wonder would he have been as happy if he like you know gave her consciousness. And by the way, we never saw that happen. No. So we don't, I guess, I guess we know that she has it because Barkley is like, you don't seem like a simulation. And then Moriarty comes in and is like, oh, she's not because I made her conscious because I can do that because I'm like, you know, totally cool that way. Yeah. Would he have been as happy giving her consciousness if she couldn't live with the evil that he had done? Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, because she is supposed to be this woman of... Of 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 fine breeding and and upstanding quality, and she is totally fine with him holding the whole ship hostage and possibly killing everybody, including her and including himself, to get what it is that they want in the end. Now she's in the same trap that he's in at that point. Interestingly, he put her there. Yeah. If he did in fact give her consciousness, which we don't know for certain that he did, but I mean, like when she wakes up. She's not horrified by everything he's done. She's still very much in love with him, even though she's got complete free will now. And she's still a wonderful person who would never do anything bad, but she'll hold his hand while he maybe plunges them all into a newly forming star. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 got, I got nothing to add to that. Yeah. Well, I think there was meant to be yeah. a question there, and I'm not sure what the question was meant to be. See, the other problem that I have with this episode, though, honestly, <laughs> is is I don't even like... You tell me you think, and I got no choice but to believe you, right? Sure. Because you sure. say you do. And th- and that's really all I've got to go on. So, Well, and, and we do a show together, so. It doesn't prove anything. That sounds crazy, and I understand that sounds crazy, but a machine that comes up to you and says, I can totally think, and you're like, well, no, you can't possibly think because you're just a, you're just a system of switches, ons and offs, zeros and ones, that's all you are. Mm-hmm. which is completely different from my brain because I have a mommy and a daddy. I mean, right. you know, I don't, I, where, where this, I, I don't know exactly what I sound like screaming, John. That's, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. <laughs> Until one day that thinking machine has sideburns and a long black coat. <laughs> then, then you give it second thought. You know, like, oh, right. oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe. Serious. Maybe so. That smoking robot from the 1939 New York World's Fair, I don't think that was fooling anyone. But then again, we have much better robots than that now that we can buy at Walmart. So, I mean, maybe maybe we're just getting... I, uh, dude, I don't know. I, I had one other question, actually. And I know I didn't go anywhere with all that, but here's... I mean, that's uh, sort of what I'm saying. I mean, like... Yeah. He says he can think, and everybody's like, oh, yeah, you can totally think. Oh, but we can't make another review because we don't actually know how we made you in the first place. And besides, maybe you weren't the best idea we ever had, not that we actually had you as an idea. You just kind of happened. 
And I mean, how do we know that it's not just more variables, right, that make him seem like he can think? I mean, look, if the countess, if we had come in and the countess had like changed clothes and was practicing a French accent (laughs) and, and maybe writing poetry, then I'd be like, okay, she's conscious. (laughs) <laughs> but even then, it might just be the computer going, okay, how do I prove that I'm conscious? I'll do something like totally left field. I'll do something like that they would never expect me to do. But then, of course, you know, if you're trying to prove that you actually thought, is that not something that you would try to do? I think, therefore, I am. It's probably going to be like the third thing that a conscious machine says, but that could just be programmed <laughs> in by somebody, couldn't right. it? Right. Like, say this. <sighs> it gets them every time. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Then they're yeah. like, oh, well, must be. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. Ooh, ooh, try I need my pain. That, that one also tends to impress people for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. Um, here's the other question that I had, actually. Okay. Did they do the right thing in the end? Hmm. I was honestly reminded of this side of paradise. Uh-oh. Moriarty would apparently be on Kirk's side in this side of paradise. He is willing to destroy the Enterprise and die in the process rather than exist in a holodeck. Oh, yeah, yeah. His his feeling, his actions, his motivations have to be real. Yeah. And And if they can't be real, they can't be as far as he's concerned. Which, well, for for now, I mean, for the remainder of his virtual life, um, he he is trapped in a cube in a you know in a toaster <laughs> that's keeping right. him alive. Um, and did they do did they do the right thing by making that happen though? I mean, Troy says in the end, in a way, you gave him what he wanted. Well, not in the way that he actually wanted to really be real in the real world and out doing real things. But if he doesn't he know the difference, is. yeah, if he doesn't know the difference, then what's the difference? <sighs> really i'm sorry not to use that term but really yeah really you think so really maybe really okay because i would encourage you to go back and listen to this side of paradise and think about the answer again i know oh no okay but really yeah maybe maybe. i mean maybe because maybe it's a different (laughs) thing because he's a creation he's he's a bunch of ones and zeros created by the enterprise computer well, so are you. Not by the Enterprise computer, but so are we all. Oh, that would be awesome. That would be awesome if I was created by the Enterprise computer. Yeah, it would be kind of hip, wouldn't it? I'd love to be able to fly. Yeah, if yeah. I could be Neo. Yeah. yeah. Neo had the right idea at the end of that first movie. Just start flying. <laughs> just, just go off and fly and whatever, you know? Leave, leave saving the world to Morpheus or somebody else. <laughs> With Moriarty and the Countess soaring the simulated galaxy, is there also a simulated Enterprise in the box on Barclay's nightstand? With a simulated Picard? And a simulated Barclay? Sitting on Barclay's nightstand? And does that simulation contain a simulation? And that one? And that one? And that one? And that one? So, a computer that thinks it's alive. Mm-hmm existential crisis free will yep. i mean this is a lot of heavy stuff to grapple with ken and it gets deeper when you add on layers like um sideburns british accents and smoking jackets it just becomes that much more complicated tangible and worthy of discussion so to wrap up the discussion we'll we'll do what we do every week in the time-honored tradition um i'm going to pose some questions to you but we'll we'll, we'll start it off with uh with the question that we like to go to first, does the episode hold up? Does Ship in a Bottle 
hold up. What do you think? Yes. I think there's a lot of fun stuff here to play with. I don't think it is as good, and this is weird to say, I don't think it is as good as the season two episode, Elementary Dear Data. Yeah. Because Elementary Dear Data really threw all of these questions in your face. I mean, you had this thing in Moriarty standing there saying, what am I? Why am I? What else can I be? Mm Mm-hmm. And in this one, you've got a guy in prison when he got out of prison. Yeah. No, I mean it's. I mean it's still good. I mean, don't misunderstand. I mean, and being able to pile those those thoughts on top of each other is a tremendous amount of fun. Um. Well, when I say fun, <laughs> I mean it really. It really does kind of hurt my head a little bit. Uh. But but it is. Um. It's a lot of interesting stuff to play with. And so in that respect, I would say. Um. Yeah, I think the episode holds up for the most part. I mean, it's yeah. I even like the twist, and I I can't remember if I remembered the twist the first time we watched it, first time I watched it rather for this uh, for this uh, for this uh, episode. But the twist is good, and uh, the, the t- and you can twist again like we did last summer if you want. <sighs> Lord, all right, that's it. I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Mm-hmm. All right. What about you? Does the episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Yeah, I mean, I agree with you for all the same reasons. It's a lot of fun. It's just Inception all up in here. <laughs> and that's that, that's nice. But this episode is the mystery episode. It's the one with all the twists and the turns and outsmarting each other. That's what this episode is about. Even going back to The Big Goodbye and then Elementary Dear Data, those were the episodes that just sort of threw in your face, hey, what if the things that we create through technology show signs of consciousness how, how do we feel about that how do we grapple with it um what is our responsibility to it do me a favor talk to me if you would yeah. about because we got more nuanced treatments of those kinds of things in season one and season two in season six mm-hmm. we get a bit more of a cartoonish moriarty than we had in season two and we get the exocomps Hmm. I mean, are we, we're getting, we're almost like, it's almost like the more we consider this stuff, the the more simple it's becoming. Is that because the audience was bigger and so you had to dumb it down a bit? Is it because we didn't have the older school science fiction writers writing, but you had maybe a more, uh, you know, writing more for TV rather than trying to jam science fiction into TV. They were trying to write TV that was science fiction. I mean, what was going on there? Because... Yeah. You've got you've got sort of more simplified studies of really what were much headier topics early on in Next Gen's run. Well, maybe there's some truth to that, just the reality of production, that here's an episode that aired four years after its prequel. Mm-hmm. And you can't assume that everybody who's watching that sequel has seen the first episode. And you can't maybe assume that even the ones who have seen it remembered all of it. Sure. So, you know, there is a bit of separation there that that you have to deal with. Um, But it could simply be that they latched on to the idea of we're going to explore the mystery and the puzzle and outwitting each other rather than explore because it's sort of a given that Moriarty has this evolved sense of consciousness that no other characters have really shown to that extent on the holodeck thus far. So so you're kind of just starting with that premise, but you're not really telling that story again. 
So, you know, I, I kept asking myself if the Moriarty stories or, or something like it, would that even make a movie where you could have something that was big and bold with, uh, you, you know, all the trappings that come with a movie, but where you can tell a really huge arc because you've got the time to tell it. And you've really got time to kind of be introspective about what does it mean that this character might be alive? What does it mean that this computer might um, be able to create intelligence and, and might not even know it? Hmm. Um, so maybe it's just sort of an inherent limit in uh, not just in TV, but in how these two episodes went together being so far apart. But, you know, I, I think what's interesting here to try to grapple with is, well, it, it's an episode that's got ideas, or at least it's based on an episode that had a pretty compelling idea. So at the end of the day, do we have messages, morals, and meanings here? What uh, what did you find? Again, not as many as I thought there were in Elementary Dear Data. Agreed. I mean, there was, there was a lot. I mean, in Elementary Dear Data, there were Pulaski's uh, preconceived notions about data that he would never be mm -hmm. able to sort of – he had nothing like intuition. He had facts on which he could work, but he couldn't build on those facts. Um, we sort of have the same sort of preconceived notion thing here. Unfortunately, Moriarty doesn't do anything to disprove it. The weakest part of this episode to me is Picard saying, listen, don't be a criminal, you know, because Moriarty hadn't been before. And that kind of that might actually go a tiny bit to the simplification. I don't want to go so far as to say dumbing down, but the simplification of this episode. Mm -hmm. um, there's still fun stuff here to play with, but it's more fun if you've got access to that first one to watch as well to see sure. to, to to sort of be reminded of, of of the heights that that character attained. Yeah, you know, of, of like I mean, that was much more of a I think therefore I am than this one. I mean, in yeah. this one, he gets to use that line as he seems to be walking out in the real world. But the first one was actually where we got, you know, I think, therefore, I am as as a as a practical application. Um, there was also one of those gem lines in here that I really liked. Um, a deadline has a wonderful way of concentrating the mind. <laughs> Doesn't it ever? Man yeah. alive. Yeah, that's like that's practically <laughs> I kind of want that in Latin tattooed on my arm. <laughs> Because that's yeah, that's a little bit uh, that's a little bit me. Hardly a message of the episode, but certainly uh, something that stuck out for me. What about you, sir? Messages that you picked up from this one? Um, you know, it may sound a little cheesy of me, but there's something that I really like at the end of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. You know, my love for that movie, and and that's the Itic message at the end. Um, and we, I, I feel like we have a little taste of that here, so. We start from a premise that we respect that Moriarty is living mm -hmm. in some way, some way that we don't understand. But we, re we start off with the idea that we respect that he is living and will keep on living inside that little cube for a long time to come. He's just a different kind of life form, fulfilling his destiny. And the Enterprise crew is not there to shut him down, but to protect themselves and at the same time protect him. There's something kind of nice about that. And then, of course, you, you cap it all off with the star being born from the collision of a couple of planets, just to make it artistic and poetic as well. You know? What about the whole part, though, where they're like, yeah, we're going to get right on trying to get you out of here. And then it's only when he is accidentally turned back on that they're like, oh, yeah, we've totally been working on this the whole time. 
<laughs> in the end, what they do is they fool him. I mean, I know they're giving yeah. him something. Do you want to be Cypher or do you want to be Neo? Right. Do you want to right. be the guy who is happy living in the illusion or do you want to be the person who goes outside no matter how crappy outside actually is? In the end, I mean, in the end, they are proud of themselves for fooling this guy. And on the one hand, yeah, he gets to live. That's great. He does. He does. And it may actually be impossible to have him live the way he thinks that he could live. Now, now, granted, they don't actually try. Right. But Picard <laughs> might be. T- but, but here's the thing. Picard might be telling the truth that Starfleet is trying to figure that out. It, it mm. might be an impossible question for them to answer. Except. We know from future things that it's not an impossible question for them to answer. See, that's the thing. Here's the problem that I have with that. Honestly, I never understood why he couldn't just walk around the Enterprise because all he'd have to do is put up like, you know, put up tracks, right? That are basically like holodeck things on the ceiling. And I know that that may sound crazy, but we are talking about a new life form. The captain of the ship says, you are a new life form, but we really can't do anything about that. (laughs) right (laughs) except for lie to you and trick you into thinking and i guess the other problem that i have is i mean because because i have to then ask myself okay how does this change my feelings on this side of paradise Hmm. i think it's the choice i know a lot of people say that the people on omicron city 3 didn't have a choice but they weren't given any choice either they were there. It was taken away from them. They are no longer happy. You know, whatever. Moriarty is not given a choice here. This might have been an interesting thing for Picard to actually suggest to him. Like, you know, do you want this? Here's what this would look like otherwise. Maybe even build him a contraption. So you'll never be able to go here. You'll never be able to touch stuff. You'll never be able to do this. This honestly might be at the end of the menagerie. The menagerie part two. Mm, All right, Moriarty, mm -hmm, here. mm -hmm. We've actually figured out a way you can do this. Now, you're going to be a brain in a jar. Well, not a brain because you don't have one. (laughs) But you're going to be a circuit board in a jar, and we'll put some, like, gyroscopes on you so you can maybe fly around a little bit. Or we can build this whole universe in which you and the Countess can fly around forever. And you can maybe not actually touch, but you'll think you are, and that'll be just as good. Or will it? Then it's up to you. I think – I think – I mean, I still love this episode, but I think the problem that I have was, you know, how they're patting themselves on the back for lying to this guy. Yeah, but remember, Picard wasn't given a choice here either. His ship was about to be destroyed by the person who had taken it over and was not about to give up control. So what do you do in the end? You know, you, you've got to contain that problem and protect the crew first. So <laughs> True. he didn't, you know, he didn't exactly have a choice there. And, and, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe the next episode that hasn't been written yet is the one where uh, uh, we do a, a neural link to the, the toaster with the cube in it, where Moriarty and the Countess are flying around and Picard can virtually step in and say, so how's this going? By the way, you're in a box on my desk. <laughs> no, you're in a box <laughs> under Barclay's bed. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean, it, I guess what's weird to me is they're all like, hey, look what we did. But then you go back to the menagerie, you go back to the cage, you go back to the site of paradise. And this has never been the solution for anyone. Yeah. But it's going to be now. You go back to, um, you go back to um, iMud. This has never been the solution for anyone. Happiness? No, no, no. I mean, without, you know, reality, that's what we want. Working for it. Yeah, without having some truth behind it. That's what we want, right. 
No, yeah. but for the, but for this life form that we created, which by the way we're given to believe has now created another life form. Mm-hmm. So now there are two of these things mm-hmm. living in a jar on somebody's nightstand. Yeah. <sighs> one day, John. One day, I will know exactly what it sounds like when ice cream. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at Roddenberry.com, including the good work done by the Roddenberry Foundation, as well as events, merchandise, and everything to know about what's happening at Roddenberry. You can support Mission Log directly by joining Patreon, patreon.com slash mission log. For members, we have cool, exclusive gifts to thank you. Find out more at patreon.com slash mission log. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week, Aquiel. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Descartes orders a hot dog. The gentleman selling the hot dog asks, Do you want ketchup on that? I think not, says Descartes. Then, he ceases to be. End transmission.